Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed me in my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, Yet as, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We're going to spend the next while uh, discussing this text that Dan read for us. Our family camped at Bon Echo this summer, and if you've camped there or camped in that area, you may be aware that 30 minutes south of Bon Echo is the Lennox, Lennox and Addington dark sky viewing area. Far from the lights of any city or town, a dark sky viewing area is set up so people can appreciate the night sky with all of its wonder. So I have a question for you. Which is more impressive? Is it more impressive the, uh, the fact that each galaxy, including ours, the Milky Way, contains hundreds of billions of stars, and based on the fact that we currently think there's around 100 billion galaxies, that means there's more than 70 sextillion stars in the universe, and yes, that is a real number. It's the number 70 followed by 21 zeros. On one hand, you have that fact about how many stars there are, but on the other hand, you can go and drive out to the Lennox, Lennox and Addington dark sky viewing area, and you can stare into the blackness, and you can look at the stars behind the stars, and see the flash of meteors, and see the twinkling of the red dwarfs, and the steady light of close planets. And which is more impressive, the fact or the experience? 
And perhaps we, maybe that word impressive isn't that helpful. Maybe it's just different. Like the fact exists and it's true. And if you're into physics or astronomy or something, maybe it is really actually incredibly exciting to you. But the experience, of course, of stargazing on a warm summer's eve, that's a whole different kind of experience. When we do theology, when we try to explain spiritual truths, it's like we're quoting star facts. We, we can speak about God's power, his greatness, uh, the glory and tragedy of humanity. And as we sort of detail these things, that it's true, it's right, it's, so, it's helpful. But Psalm 139, it's not, doing, it's not doing facts exactly. It's not doing encyclopedia work. The psalmist is doing experiential work. He, he, what, what it describes are not theological categories. The psalmist is trying to explain to us what it's like to meet the God behind the categories. And the psalmist, which is probably King David, though we're not exactly sure, it's like he's lying on his back. He's staring up into a God that he can barely fathom. A God who's incredibly comforting, but also terrifying. A God he wants to get away from, but also wants to be close to. Psalm 139 is about a personal encounter with an infinite God. And the kind of facts, thoughts, feelings, reactions that such an encounter produces. The psalmist is talking about what it's like to meet the God behind the categories. And I think it's incredibly important for us uh, in its insight and poetry about what that experience is like. Especially for this reason. If you're new, you may not be aware that, that we're a Reformed and Presbyterian church. And being such, we love our written theology. Like, we, we love our thick books that describe the categories. And I'm not here to denigrate them. I own many, you know, thick books. But, but Psalm 139 isn't exactly doing that. And it's kind of a helpful corrective for us, especially if you are a thick book person. And what we're going to do today is basically we're going to kind of lie down. I mean, maybe not actually. But stare deeply into the God who would reveal himself to us through this psalm. So I want to take it in three sections. First, I want to talk about the God who knows. Second, the God who is there. And the third, the end, sort of back in real life. The psalm begins with a familiar phrase. It's one that we just sang, right? Uh, o Lord, you have searched me and known me. And a search, of course, means you conduct a thorough investigation of something. God does not search like a toddler searches. If you've ever played hide-and-go-seek with a toddler, you know what I mean by that. They're not very good at searching. He searches even better than an experienced mother, you know, who always knows where everything is. He knows he searches out in the most thorough, comprehensive way. Now, what is God searching? What does he know? Verse 2, God knows when the psalmist sits down. And when he stands up. And he knows all of the psalmist's thoughts. And he knows where the psalmist walks to. And he knows when the psalmist goes to bed. And he's acquainted with everything, in case he left something out. Everything he does. Even before the psalmist speaks, according to verse 3, God knows what he will say. It's a lot of ands. There's a lot of things there. But notice, it's not bare knowledge. It's not mere surveillance. This is profound knowledge, deep knowledge, intimate familiarity. I mean, look at some of the words the psalm uses to speak about how God knows. It talks about him discerning, searching out, knowing something altogether. So the psalmist does not mean that God simply has, you know, spy corners in the, in, in, or spy cameras in the corner of every room. But he's always there. He's inside, outside of humans. He knows everything about everything. Now, this is the theological category of omniscience. That's like the, the big word for it, of God having all knowledge, that he knows everything there is to know. 
that God has no need of being taught or learning. In fact, he's never been taught, nor has he ever learned anything. He just knows everything. And when that depth and when that breadth of knowledge, when it zooms in on a single individual, it can be quite disconcerting. And that's what the psalmist is getting at. When the God who knows all, when he focuses on you, that's a profound kind of exposure. It's not exactly like having someone walk in on you when you're naked, as awkward or as embarrassing as that might be. It, you're being seen on the outside, but on the inside. See, God knows what your body looks like, but it's far more exposing than that. See, when you realize that God has searched you and known you, then he knows where your kindness ends. He knows the attractions you haven't admitted to anyone. He knows who you hate. He knows the very best parts of you, but also the worst. He knows the mistakes of youth, but also the regrets of age. And on a more mundane level, he knows when your alarm is set for tomorrow, how many times you'll hit the snooze button, what you will dream about as you snooze. He knows what kinds of ice cream you will choose at the Cone Place next Friday night. He knows. It is, it is, all, it is all laid wide open, and so are we. Now, before we talk about what, what kind of things that experience generates in us, let's just be skeptical for a moment. How do we know David is right? Maybe the psalmist feels like this, but he's mistaken. Well, what, what do the rest of the scriptures say about this? 1 John 3, verse 20. Even when our hearts condemn us, God's greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. Psalm 147, verse 4. God numbers all the stars and gives to all of them names. I mean, remembering that there are 76 trillion or so. That's a lot of stars, a lot of numbers, a lot of names. Hebrews 4, 13. There's no creature that's hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And we could go on. But the universal testimony of the scriptures is that God knows that he has full and complete knowledge. Now, in Ottawa, we're used to information that's redacted. <laughs> like, 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 we see the documents, but important details are blacked out. Because most of us are not on you know, the need-to-know basis. We don't need to know. But God knows everything without redactions. Without half-truths, he just knows. But remember, this psalm is not about the doctrine per se, but about the experience. What happens when we stand before the, this God who knows? What happens inside of us when we lay on our back and stare up into that truth? Maybe you felt it already as we've been speaking, but one response, and maybe the first response, is simply to squirm. To feel discomfort, to feel threatened, because there, there's no screen you can hide behind. No place to, you can retreat to. If you look at verse 5, the psalmist says there that he feels hemmed in, trapped, behind and before. If you feel threatened, if you feel exposed, that means you've begun to understand this accurately. Now the second response is a little bit different. Perhaps you feel some kind of incredulity, a disbelief. Maybe you're a bit more of a philosophical sort. Maybe you have questions. Maybe your mind has exploded sort of in a thousand directions. What about the data storage? What about the organization? What are the mechanics of how this works? Maybe the sheer scope of the knowledge is, is so overwhelming, you just think, well, this is hyperbole. Can't be true. Maybe the psalmist is overstating things to prove a point. Well, the psalmist sympathizes with that feeling as well. If you look at the end of verse 5, it says, this knowledge is too wonderful. It's too high. It cannot be attained. See, David's senses, or the psalmist, whoever it is, senses an inability to comprehend how this works, to, to understand how it can take place. His brain is not big enough. 
He doesn't have enough creativity, not enough imagination to figure it out. Like too much electricity has gone through the system and the circuit breaker has tripped. So perhaps you feel threatened, perhaps you feel confused or questioning, and maybe you feel comforted. Because maybe there are things you've never confessed to anyone, things you felt like you could never tell anyone. Or maybe no one ever really wanted to know you. Or maybe someone does want to know you, but you can't kind of articulate all that's going on inside you. Whatever the case, perhaps God's profound understanding of everything that is makes you feel oddly comforted, because at least someone knows. No matter which response feels most like you, or maybe there's a fourth thing I've left out. Just take a moment to sit in that. For the experience of interacting with a God who knows will provoke all sorts of things in us. But there's more. I've got to add something else to the pile. Part two, the God who's there. In verse seven, the psalmist asks, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? See, the, the, the knowledge of God sometimes inspires a kind of terror, a desire to hide. The, the exposure overwhelms us and we want to run. Now, we aren't sure if the psalmist is trying to catch a ship somewhere or a chariot, you know, whatever, or, or this is just sort of a mental exercise. Either way, the psalmist concludes, there is nowhere to run from God. God is everywhere that there is. Look at verse 8. He says, if I ascend to heaven, well, you're there. <laughs> if I make my bed in Sheol, you're, you're there as well. Heaven refers to sort of the skies, space, and perhaps to the spiritual places where God dwells. Sheol is the place of the dead. And they didn't have that super developed in, in Hebrew thought, but think of uh, places that are low and dark, you know, and bad and shadowy, all that kind of stuff. The psalmist is telling us there's nowhere too high for God. There's nowhere too low for God. Even beyond the physical into the spiritual, God's still there. Look at verse 9. The psalmist wonders, well, maybe he could escape God by flying on the wings of the morning. That's a reference to traveling to the far east where the sun rises. Or what if I go dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea? That's a reference to the far west, because if, if you remember, Israel was on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. So to the north, east, and south of them was land, peoples, empires. But to the west of Israel, there's just water. It's just, it's just ocean. As far as the psalmist knew, the ocean to the west was endless. Even if you sailed beyond Gibraltar, like just more ocean. So the psalmist concludes, there's nowhere to escape from God. You can go as far east as you like. You can go as far west as you can. You can go as far up or down as is possible. In all those places, God is there. And in verse 11 and 12, he says, God's not fooled by darkness. God's as much in the dark as he is in the light. That's not going to help you. You can't be hidden from the, the gaze of God. And then as if to put an exclamation point on it, the psalmist notes the presence of God also extends to the womb. That God is there when limbs are being formed when cells are diversifying and splitting, when the spinal cord forms, when the heart begins to beat. Even these places are not hidden from God. This is one of the texts, by the way, that underlies one of the reasons that the Christians advocate for life in the womb. Because the psalmist insists that life does not begin with a heartbeat or with a breath. It begins with God's presence there when there is unformed substance. That's the word he uses. And additionally, to those of you, those of us who have mixed feelings about our bodies, who wish for more of this or less of that, verse 14 tells, tells you, tells each of us, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the English there, it's not as good, not as expressive as the Hebrew. The Hebrew has more of the sense that, that each person is awesomely wonderful, marvelous. Uh, your, your body is, is astounding. <laughs> 
you know, beauty standards, ability to play sports, the power of your brain, like any of these things and more might be praised by our society, but your level in any of these categories has nothing to do with, with, with how God thinks of you. Society may value people very differently, but in the kingdom of God, everyone is awesomely wonderful. Now, the point of this psalm is not to defend the rights of an unborn child, though it can be used for that legitimately. The point of the psalm is not to affirm the dignity and worth of every human life, though it can be used for that. The main purpose of this psalm is is to, to help us experience this idea that God is everywhere. The womb was the place of deepest concealment. Remember, they, they didn't have all of the technology we have now. You can kind of see the outline of the baby. No, no. The, the womb was the most hidden place they could possibly imagine. No one can get in there. Even there, God is present. According to verse 16, from the day that you were conceived, one cell became two. From that day on, God has been with you all of the days. He knew every day that would come for you. He's seen them all, and he will walk all of them with you each one of your days until they put you in the ground. And again, we could wander through scripture. I could show you some of the other places where God's presence uh, is, is affirmed. But what I want to ask you is what happens in your heart when you contemplate the everywhereness of God? That he's always been there in all the moments of your life, the mundane, the boring, moments of great triumph, but also the crushing defeats the great spiritual victories, but also the shameful sins. He's been there for all of them. What happens inside of you? Terror? Comfort? Questions? See, this psalm, it's, it's pushing you. It's pressing you to a place where you are being forced to acknowledge, or I am being forced to acknowledge, that our thoughts about God, how we think about him, it's too small. The psalmist is obliterating all thinking of a tame God, a God who sits in church waiting for you to show up. The God portrayed in Psalm 139, he's bigger, he's wilder, he's less controllable, he's less workable than you previously imagined. For the universe does not contain him. He is not simply everywhere present in the universe. He is the environment the universe exists in. Knowledge is not learned by him as we write it down, but in every category, in every field, we are merely thinking God's thoughts after him. At your very best, if you're the the greatest pioneer, you're still second to every piece of knowledge. God thought of it first. Any words we can put to his existence are inadequate, not necessarily because they're wrong, but they're just not enough. See, what we must acknowledge in Psalm 139 is we stand on the edge of someone we clearly do not control. And not only are we near him, we are known by him. And we're not sort of only reaching out towards him you know, with our hands or with our minds, but the psalmist says at the same time, he is speeding towards us. He is thinking thoughts about us. And perhaps this is why the author of the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Shortly before uh, my wedding, our wedding, my wife Jen, or my soon-to-be wife Jen at that point, and her sister went camping on Georgian Bay. This is a day of camping illustrations because it's the summer, so just stay with me. There's a forecast of storms, but they're like, it'll be fine. We're experienced kayakers, which they were, and they went anyway. So they paddled out to an island out on, out on Georgian Bay. And uh, they arrived there, and they could see the storm, you know, off in the distance. If you've ever kind of paddled on big water, and you can kind of see it kind of rolling in. And if you've ever been camping, like tent camping, when a major storm is coming in, you know how helpless you feel. 
because you can't outrun it. <laughs> it's moving faster than you. You can't hide from it. The only thing you can do is hunker down and try to wait. Try to wait it out. So Jen and her sister, they set up their tent. Uh, they ate a bit of food. They got inside the tent. And then the storm struck. And you can get this, the whole story from her from some other time. Clearly she survived. You know, we're all here and stuff like that. But as they laid on their backs and the strong winds uh, flattened the tent so it was like touching their faces... And thunder boomed and lightning lit up the sky as a storm broke over them. Psalm 139. It's like we've all arrived on the island of humanity. And as we turn our gaze from our own feet, we look up to see this, this, this being of unimaginable power roaring towards us. Not a dumb storm, but a living God about to explode on your life and there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. And some of us will find that experience terrifying because we want to run. We want to flee. Isn't there some place I can go to get away from this God? Some of us are comforted. If you look in verse 10, the psalmist says, well, it's good to remember that there's no place where God will not be holding his hand and leading him. And that's helpful when you're in a difficult place. I mean, imagine the Jewish people later on when they went to exile in Babylon and they've been dragged from their homes by invading armies that they could sit together and they could sing one, uh, Psalm 139 and, and understand no matter where they were taken, no matter what humans took from them, that God would be holding their hand. Psalmist finds it at times extremely comforting. But, you know, he didn't even know about Jesus yet. See, what we get to know on the far side of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is that this all-knowing, this everywhere God, he's coming to save us. The boiling storm rolls towards us in mercy. See, in verse 17, the psalmist is comforted and encouraged by the fact that God is thinking thoughts about him. What kind of thoughts does God think about you? About us? Well, he's concerned with saving us. He's concerned with making us into his people, shaping our lives so they're filled with, with, with salvation and forgiveness and joy and hope. It's not that God's knowledge and his presence aren't still at times disconcerting, but we are reassured in the life of Christ that God is for us. And if you take the last line of verse 18, when he says, when I awake, I am still with you. I think this is a reference to, to death. Sleep is a common metaphor for death in all of the scriptures. I think the psalmist is dropping a little hint that this God who knows, this God who is everywhere present, that he will actually be there on the other side of death. But what happens in you when you meet the God who knows and is there? Well, let's move to part three, back in real life. Now, does anyone remember movie theaters? Remember, you'd, you'd go to like a giant room with other people and just watch a movie. Uh, you know, back in the old world, uh, kids, you know, you probably don't remember this, but sometimes in the old world, we'd go to what was called a matinee, which was a show in the middle of the day. And, and for two hours, you enter this alternate universe and, you know, whatever movie you're going to see, uh, aliens blowing things up, you know, a love story in Australia, like whatever your, whatever your cup of tea is. And you go into this matinee and you get immersed in this world and... And then, then it's over, the lights come up, you know, dimly, and you leave the dark theater, and you emerge into bright sunlight. And you're like, it's kind of shocking, like, wait, this other world exists? I've, I felt part of a different thing, it's still daytime outside. If you've ever been to a matinee, it's, it's this weird feeling. 
And for the first 18 verses of Psalm 139, the psalmist has sort of been, been staring into the largeness of God, kind of lost in this reverie, having this encounter with this overwhelming God. And then in verse 19, the psalmist has like emerged from the matinee into the bright sunlight and is confused. Because there's evil people there. He like sat up from wherever he was lying. He looked around and like someone kicked a dog and then someone stole a purse and then someone you know, made a crude insult or whatever. It's as if the psalmist has re-entered the world in verse 19 and is kind of floored by what's going on. See, the psalmist has understood that there's this God who knows everything and sees everything, but then there's this world full of evil people and he doesn't know what to do. He can't make sense of how such a God would allow this kind of evil to go on. Surely God knows about it. He knows everything there is to know. Surely God sees it. He sees everything there is. Why doesn't he just kill them? Why isn't there justice immediately? Why isn't the punishment swift? And the psalmist kind of asks questions, but it sounds like a complaint in verse 20. He's like, God, they're speaking against you. They're taking your name in vain. They're making light of you. As if to say, aren't you going to do something? Now, we don't actually get a, an answer to his question, to his complaint. Psalmist doesn't offer, and doesn't even try to tell us why God permits this evil. Now, other scriptures will, will offer some kind of explanation saying, well, God's being patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. God is bending evil to his purposes. There, there's some explanations out there, but what I want to focus on in this third part is the personal response of the psalmist. What does the psalmist say in light of his encounter with God about his relationship to evil? Well, three quick things. First, he commits all vengeance for evil to God. If you see it, look in verse 19. He is asking God to do something about evil. He's not taking it into his own hands. He's not wielding a sword personally. He asks God to do something. You know, sometimes we are put in a position where we can prevent evil, or we can help, or, or, or we can block something. But many times we're powerless, and we simply need to commit the vengeance for evil, the justice dealing for evil to God. But second, he tries to get away from evil on a personal level. Look at verse 19. He tells the men of blood, that's a you know, mur- uh, code word for murderers, he says, get away from me. <laughs> I-, I don't want to have anything to do with people who are intentionally evil. And if you look in 21 and 22, there's, there's some strong emotional language there. He's saying, I hate these people. I loathe them. They're my enemies. Now, these emotions should obviously be balanced with other biblical injunctions to love our enemies. But the position of the psalmist is quite clear. He's trying to get away from evil. He's trying to prevent it from influencing him. He doesn't want to be swept up in it. The book of Proverbs tells us over and over, be careful about who your friends are. No, not that you shouldn't be loving and kind and patient with anyone who comes across your path. Of course you should. Be careful with who you routinely associate, who you cultivate as friends. And the reason Proverbs says is because you'll become like them. You'll be influenced by them. What is normal to them will become normal to you. They'll change how you see the world. And according to this psalm, according to the book of Proverbs, if they're deep into sin, they're going to sweep you along with it. They will change what feels normal. When uh, Jen and I were involved in campus ministry, I always felt like I was rich. Now, we didn't make that much money, but most of our friends were broke university students. So our house, we had the nicest furniture. <laughs> we, we ate out more than, than most other people. We had a car. You know, in university, that makes you, you know, a rich person. Now, I'm not telling you you have to shun your rich friends. I'm just saying your friendships matter. Because they change what's normal. And the psalmist is saying, I don't want to be swept up in evil. I don't want it to become normal in my life. 
He knows that God sees everything and knows everything. There's no escape from God. And he says, I don't want to be near sin. I want it far away. Now third, finally. The last two verses are kind of a repeat of the first two. Remember, the psalmist started by saying, he has been known, he has been searched out by God. It was sort of a passive comment. It felt like something God was doing to him. But here the phrasing is slightly different. Now he invites God to search him. He wants to be tried. He wants to be put in the witness stand and questioned, to have his thoughts examined, to see if there's anything spiritually offensive in his life. He wants God to lead him. See, in other words, the psalmist has arrived at a place where now he is actively confronting, with God's help, the evil within. The knowledge, the presence of God has produced in him a desire to be free from sin, to fight it wherever he finds it. And I would submit to you that this kind of heart This kind of attitude is a sign of maturity. Now, lots of us probably equate maturity with obvious external progress. I swear less than I used to. I'm kinder than I used to be. I'm more generous than I used to be. Those are indeed signs of progress, but here's another one. Are you increasingly frustrated with your sin? Do you desire to be free from your own evil? Are you as tired of the evil within as the evil without? See, what kind of person or what kind of, you know, what kind of person does an encounter with the all-knowing everywhere God produce? Someone who's humble, repentant, at war with their own sin, and joyful for the work of Christ. So I don't know where this finds you today. I don't know which kind of reactions most resonate with where you are at, you know, heart and mind and body. But here's what I know. The God who knows, the God who is there, has sent his son in love to be the savior of the world. And he came for people whose thoughts and minds and lives weren't right. The knowledge of God, the presence of God are at work to save you from your sin, to lead you from evil and to make you more like Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. Thank you that you have interacted with us, that you've, you've come close. You've condescended to know us and to, have, to have and to be known by us. I pray that you would work in us, that we'd understand the kind of thoughts you are thinking towards us, the kind of things you are trying to produce in us. Help us to see you in the face of Christ, to understand that you are coming to save us. You're coming in mercy. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.